Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your new favorite World War II based podcast. I am your host Don Abernathy. I have a little house cleaning to get to before we get on with the show. Um, As you noticed, uh, Sunday came and there was no show. Um, I have decided to move the posting date of this podcast to Monday evenings. And the reason being is I haven't really brought it up too much on this podcast, but I do host two different podcasts, and both of those podcasts are recorded on the same night, Saturday nights. Now, the other podcast I do, which is just a general topic entertainment podcast called the Waterman and D-Train Show, my co-host is Dave the Waterman. We are both uh, can be heard on the Stan and Haney Show on 96K Rock and the 96K Rock app, 2 to 6 p.m., Monday through Friday. And the Waterman and D-Train Show podcast goes a little quicker and smoother because we both do radio. It doesn't require a lot of post-production. It doesn't require a lot of editing. And so I can get it recorded up and out of the way pretty quickly. Um, with the layout of this podcast, because there's history involved, because I interview people who a lot of times don't do radio much or have never done radio or a extended interview format it takes a lot of time to edit um, edit down for time edit out long pauses things like that there's more post-production that goes into it there's some research and so to try to edit two podcasts in one day and get them both uploaded in one day I feel sometimes this podcast doesn't get the production quality that it deserves And so by moving it to Monday evenings, that gives me an extra day to put the final touches on it. And so until the day comes where I change my mind once again, um, the post date for the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast will now be on Monday evenings. And let's get on with the show. So last Christmas, a friend of mine, Stan, got me a new book for Christmas. And uh, being a World War II fanatic, he knew the uh, best thing to do for me is to get me a World War II-based book. And he got me a book called The Forgotten 500 by Gregory A. Freeman. And to be honest with you, I wasn't familiar with this story, which is actually a good thing, because what better way to enjoy a new book than to read about something you weren't familiar with? And I probably got to chapter two before I got so excited I decided I have to have this guy on the, on the show, because this is a great story. His form of writing is fantastic. I could not put this book down. I blew through it real quickly. And without further ado, joining us on the phone right now, is Mr. Gregory A. Freeman. Gregory, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. Um, before we talk about your book, let's get a little history on you, because I see you actually have quite a decent-sized catalogs of books. I know you were also into journalism, and you have roughly about 25 years of experience. Um, give us a little background on you. Uh, yeah, I'm a writer. I uh, My books all uh, concentrate on uh, mostly uh, World War II, Vietnam, and I write what's called narrative nonfiction, which is, uh, which just means that the, the stories are completely true. I don't um, have to make up anything to fill in the gaps, but uh, my goal is to have it read more like a novel. So it's, uh, it's a good read rather than uh, reading like a dry history book. Now, when it comes to researching some of these um, history books and these World War II novels that you do, do you intentionally go out of your way to find stories that people aren't really aware of, or do you just come across things that you find interesting and take it from there? Yeah, I really seek out the ones that um, somehow have been overlooked uh, over time. Um, stories that have some real gravitas, that you know have some real meaning, but 
somehow they just never really got the the attention that they deserved. And uh, the story of the Forgotten 500 is, is certainly one of those. The story of the Forgotten 500, the untold story of the men who risked it all for the greatest rescue mission of World War II. As I said at the beginning of this, I was completely blown away by this book. And I was uh, completely, to be honest with you, amazed by your writing style. Because as you said, these well, are uh, historical nonfiction. But as you also said, you write it to read like a novel. And one of the things I really enjoyed, not only did you tell the story about the men in this mission and those who were down and we were trying to rescue, but you go into great detail about the organizing of the um, uh, the OSS of Donovan right, and all the things that happened. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but some of the things that the roadblocks that were intentionally be put up to prevent this rescue from going on because of political issues. And so not only do you tell the story of the guys involved, but you really give a whole grasp of everything that was going on, including the details required to build the story about, you know, department heads and people who are involved in the policies and the politics of all of it. Yeah, that's one of the things I find so fascinating in a story like this, is that there are so many layers of it, so many circles of different people being involved. And, um, you know, in case your listeners don't know, the, the, the basic story is about um, American uh, and other Allied airmen who go down behind enemy lines in Yugoslavia. They're mostly bomber crews, um, and they go down behind enemy lines in World War II, and they're, they're trapped back there. And um, they are um, rescued by local villagers, and um, they are harbored by a, a local uh, Serbian general named Mihailovic. And um, they're hiding out, and then eventually the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, uh, launches a very secret rescue mission to go get them. And so, yeah, as, as you were saying, there's so much going on in different areas with the the men doing what they can to survive, the villagers helping them, the, the, the OSS operatives in Italy preparing this mission and, and training for it. And, um, yeah, as, as you alluded to, there's so much that they had to overcome just to, just to get the OSS operatives on site to, to help the rescued airmen. And there, it involved a lot of um, very frustrating international intrigue between people who should have been working together and uh, lot, lots of complications. Well, it's bad enough to get shot down into enemy territory during a large-scale war such as World War II, but then when you go down to the finer point, not only are you in a German-occupied land, but you're also in a land that is also amongst its own civil war. And so you have right. the bigger picture of the Allies trying to fight the Germans, but you're downed in this country where you have two factions that are fighting amongst each other, and then the politics involved. And so as the airmen, not only do you got to hope that you don't get captured by the Germans, but you got to hope that you don't get captured by the side of the Civil War that you were informed may not be the best friend or have your best interest in heart. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. When they parachuted down into this region in Yugoslavia, they, you know, these were all young airmen. They knew very little about what to expect in Yugoslavia. But what they had been told was that the, the locals in this area were very hostile to them, would, would cut their ears off and terrible things like that. Uh, what they found was just the opposite. They found the, these wonderful people, little um, babushka kind of old ladies, you know, rushing out to, to gather them up and, and take them into hiding. 
and uh, and the people were incredibly generous to them and and risking their lives to to help the these American airmen because if they had been found out, the Germans would have exacted really severe retribution against the whole village. Um, but in addition to that problem with the Germans who were right there nearby, they yeah they were these people were loyal to Mihailovich who was the general who was fighting for control of Yugoslavia uh, with General Tito, the communist. So there was a civil war going on at the same time they were trying to fight off the German invaders. Um, so yeah, the, these young airmen could not really have parachuted down into a more complicated situation. One of the benefits, if, if at all any, because I mean obviously this is a horrible situation to be in, you had these villagers, as you said, not only did they put their lives in danger from the Germans, but they kind of put their lives in danger because they sacrificed their food, their living quarters, um, and anything they had that they needed to sustain their family and to sustain their own livelihood. But they were more than willing to help give it to these down airmen to help keep them alive because they had such great passion and belief in what the Allies were trying to do in the overall picture. And so they were really putting themselves on the line in more than one way. They did. They did. These were... These were people who were already, you know, even before war broke out, I mean, just their daily life on a very normal basis was pretty pretty hard living. And then along comes the civil war in their country, and then the Germans invade. And so these are people who are in a very, very tough day-to-day existence uh, with, you know, barely enough food to get by. Um, but when they had these airmen in their midst, they would give up practically everything to, to help the airmen. Um, and it was really touching to some of the airmen, or well, to all the airmen, when they, when they realized how much these people were giving to them, how much they were sacrificing of their, their what very little they already had to, to help the airmen. And the, the villagers, um, you know, they explained it by saying they just so greatly appreciated that these were men from a, from a totally different land who, had sacrificed themselves, had risked their own lives to come help push the Germans out of their country. And even though this was 1944 and much of the world was made up of farmers, the geographical location and the soil of this area wasn't really conducive to farming. So it's not like, okay, let's plant some more crops. I mean, it was really uh, scrabble to find and you know get whatever things they could to eat. The bread, as you stated in the book, that they kind of cut it, if you will, with straw and hay to make up for lack of flour and other baked goods. Right. Yeah, it was a very hard scrabble existence, even in even in good times. And these were not good times for anyone. Um, but they 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 sacrificed for these American airmen, and uh, um, it, it was a tremendous uh, act of act of charity. So not only did the airmen they land and they had the graces, if you will, of the villagers helping them out. The actual rescue and how the rescue, how their plight became known to us, the Allies, was almost kind of an act of God in itself. Because um, once again, not to get too much away, but due to the the politics involved in the chain of command and the different communications through the different governments, um, information wasn't exactly getting passed along quickly. And so, right, how we, how the gentleman who ended up heading up this mission, how he found out about it, was basically through his wife through a, a dinner right. party almost. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an incredible story, uh, but it's, it's absolutely true. Um, 
Yeah, his wife, he had met his wife in Yugoslavia. Uh, their whole story of getting her out of Yugoslavia in the early days of the war is, is a tremendous uh, part of the book itself. It's, it's just an amazing love story and uh, adventure on its own, just in getting her to America. And then um, when she is in America, she, she makes contact uh, with some of the local Yugoslav expatriates and she just kind of by word of mouth hears, oh, there's all these American airmen in the mountains and our people are trying to help them as best we can. And so she kind of innocently writes to her husband in Italy saying, you know, are you guys doing something to go get those airmen? And that's essentially how he finds out that they're there. And from there, everything goes into movement for, for launching the rescue. And back against your style of writing, in this book, it's 280 pages, and you probably tell, I would say, one big story and about six to seven sub-stories, but tied in all together in such a great way that it's not confusing. It's not like, okay, here we go. Can we, can, can we get back to the plot? It's, it doesn't feel like homework. Like I said, I couldn't put this book down. It's a quick 280 pages. It's a great read. And I really want to compliment you on that skill. Well, I really appreciate that because uh, that's really exactly what I'm going for. I, you know, I, in the end, when you finish the book, I, ho I hope that I've imparted a whole lot of knowledge that you didn't have about this incident. But I hope you feel like you just read something really enjoyable. You just read a good story, and along the way, you learned a lot of things. Um, and uh, that, that's really nice to hear that, that uh, it had that effect on you. Now, some of the stories, um, the first-hand stories in this book, did you get from survivors, or was that from libraries? Almost all of the uh, stories of the individual experiences are uh, from survivors. I met a great deal of the, the veterans, um, the rescuers, um, uh, uh, people like Voinovich, uh, who organized the whole rescue. Um, and, yeah, it was just amazing to hear their first-hand stories and then, um, find ways to, to weave all of those stories together. Well, and another great gift in this book, um, a lot of people such as myself who are big into history, whenever I read a book or even see a movie based on a true story, the first thing I do is I go on the Internet and I try to find photos of the real people. And you have some great mm -hmm. photos in this book, which saves people time from having to do that. I mean, you have I can only imagine that you probably got most of these photos from some of the survivors you interviewed or their families. Yeah, yeah, the photos are wonderful. Yeah, most of them came um, from the veterans themselves, from the families. Um, yeah, and, and I was I was so thrilled to find some of them, like the 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 pictures of the men in the village um, as they were waiting to be rescued, and and the the pictures of the rescue itself. Uh, you know, them actually climbing on board the C-47s and things like that it was uh, pretty amazing to see. Now I'm looking on your website and um, at your books, and I noticed that you have the Forgotten 500. Is that in um, – what language is that in? Because you have it in dual print, correct? Um, yeah, the Forgotten 500 has uh, been published in uh, uh, Serbian and in Italian. Well, that's a great compliment in itself. The fact it that there was it's such a demand for it that they want to reprint it, you know, print a second edition in different languages. Yeah, and the Serbian people are um, extremely proud of this story. Um, they've really supported this book so strongly um, because it's it's a story that they're they're really proud of in their history that they um, made such an important contribution uh, to the Americans who who were risking their lives for them. And um, 
you know, Serbian people, they've had a rough history, uh, and, you know, they, 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 they come under a lot of criticism for different things in recent years, but, but this episode in 44 is something that they are just so proud to have been a part of. And, um, so they're very supportive of the book. Um, they, um, were excited to have it come out in Serbian so, so they could actually read it in Serbian. And, um, they were wonderful. They, the Serbian government hosted me and my family when, when it, the translation came out and took us on a whole tour of the country. Um, and they're just the most, um, giving, warm, uh, people. They're really wonderful folks. Now, did your family have a chance to tour any of the areas that their headquarters or maybe the runway or any of those areas from the book, or was it pretty much? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we went into Pragnani, the mountainous area where all this took place. And um, um, actually, I actually stood on um, where the airfield was, uh, which is um, still a potato field. And, uh, you know, that's actually where the airplanes touched down to, to rescue the airmen and we also went around to a lot of little um, homesteads in the area uh, where the airmen had been hidden. And um, at every house where the, her- the airmen had been, the, um, if, the, if the people, the, the older folks were still alive who, remember, who remembered it, it was something that was very important to them, and they were so excited to tell the story. Um, and even when those people had passed on, their, their living family um, held on to it as a, a really important part of their family history and they were just so excited to see us and explain it to us and show us where the airmen had been uh it was great now did you make this travel before or after the book came out uh it was after the book originally came out it was uh when the book was translated to serbian so okay. it was when that version came out yeah i was just wondering if you use that as part of your research but you wrote about these villages and the mountainous regions but then to be standing there was the real life village anything remotely close to what you had in your head when you're writing this book and doing your research? Yeah, it was, but still, you know, standing right there where it all happened um, and, and a story that, um, you know, means so much to me because, because I know it through the, the stories of all these people I met and people who told me, you know, their personal stories. Yeah, it, it was mind-blowing and uh, it was a very, very uh, special time. I'd also imagine it probably made you realize how much of a difficult task this was and actually seeing the potato field and seeing the area granted it's been grown up more in the last you know 70 years but even still you know the mountain range itself it probably made you realize what a daunting task this truly was oh yeah absolutely because it has it hasn't changed all that much um since then i mean it's still a very remote rural region and um so yeah, I mean, you could. It wasn't. It wasn't too hard to to imagine um, what it was like. Uh, what it would have been like to parachute down into this region and be harbored in these little farm villages, these little houses that dotted the mountains, and uh, and then the the actual runway where you know this this area where um, the 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 airmen who were trapped there had to build their own airway. Um, so that the C-47s could come in at night and rescue them. And they had to build this airway uh, under the under the noses of the Germans who were occupying right down in the valley below. Um, so to actually be there and see, you know, imagine these people, you know, working with nothing but the farm implements to clear this field to make it suitable for a C-47 to land. 
And that's what I want to point out to our listeners. We're not talking about building an airfield with a couple of front loaders and some bulldozers and chainsaws. These guys were using rudimentary farm equipment at best. Yeah, and um, they the the basic um, plan. What what happened was the the OSS sent in three agents um, who uh, slipped in at night, went and they organized everything on the ground there with the airmen. They basically said, "Okay, here's the plan. You know, we can get C-47s in at night to come pick you up, but um, they got to have somewhere to land, and that's up to you. You guys have to find a way to build a runway." that's long enough for C-47, and, um, and they did. And uh, even then, it was still a very, very dicey operation. Uh, everyone involved with approving the mission basically said, you know, this is crazy. You, you know, you're not going to be able to land these planes at night without the Germans finding out and then take off again with a load of airmen. Everybody thought it was crazy, but one of it's convinced them, hey, we've got no other choice. We can't just leave them there. The name of the book is the untold story is the Forgotten Five Hundred, the untold story of the men who risked it all for the greatest rescue mission of World War II. You can find it at uh, GregoryAFreeman.com. Gregory, before I let you go, I first I want to get into maybe a little bit of what got you into World War II history, and then I want you to um, talk about the new book you have coming out. Um, yeah, I, I have. Uh always been interested in these sort of hidden stories, um, stories that um, should have gotten a lot more attention, but uh, they haven't, and so I get to be the one to tell everybody, and um, those are hard to dig up. Um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the best stories have already been told, but uh, I've been fortunate enough to find a number like that. The first book I ever wrote was uh, about a plantation in Georgia that uh, was essentially still run with slaves in 1921. Um, and there was a series of murders that led to a pretty sensational murder trial. Um, and then I uh, went on to do uh, a few World War II stories, uh, um, Vietnam-era stories uh, set on, two of them are set on aircraft carriers, um, which are fascinating experiences. And um, my... Uh, more recent book was about the sinking of the big sailing ship, the Bounty, um, big wooden sailing ship that went down uh, in the hurricane a few years ago off the, the East Coast. And um, was that, that was the Gathering Wind? Yes, the Gathering Wind. Yes, it's a, a fascinating tale of um, these young people who sailed directly into a hurricane because they. They trust their captain. Their captain is older and more experienced, and uh, they trust their captain. And he, for some confounding reasons, sells them directly into a hurricane. I'm also working on some other projects, including uh, my first uh, piece of fiction, which is uh, set in uh, the Civil War. How's that transition been for you? Uh, it's it's uh, it's very different. Yeah, writing fiction is very different from writing nonfiction. It's uh, my thing up to this point has been, you know, give me the facts and I can spin them into a really compelling story for you. Um, um, having to come up with a story on my own and find out what happens on the next page, that's, that's a little bit of a different challenge. But, but I'm enjoying it. It's a, it's, a good, uh, it's a good challenge. Well, because when you're doing a biography, you have the facts, you have the stories that are told to you by the survivors or by their families, and that kind of gives you a timeline, an outline, a storyboard, and then your job is right. to, to connect it all and make it interesting reading. Whereas, as you right. said, with fiction, 
granted Civil War and you have a lot of historical aspects in there, but you have to kind of quote unquote make it up. That also gives you a lot of freedom. It does, yeah. It, which is which is both a blessing and a curse. I mean, you know, yeah, it, it's it's a freedom to make it up however you want it to be, but um, yeah, but then you have to make it be something that that makes sense with your story and brings the reader along with you. Let me ask you a question. How have you noticed any big change in the publishing industry since you first got started? As far as um, I don't know, just the whole thing, because obviously a lot more books are going to the digital format. Um, do you find it's changed, or is it pretty much stayed the same? Yeah, it has changed a good bit. Um, I kind of, uh, I kind of came into the publishing industry on the tail end of what I guess a lot of us think of as the old, more traditional ways of book publishing. Um, you know, bef- a little before uh, digital media was really coming into its own and that sort of thing, and before the explosion of the internet, where um, you just have so much more information available to you in, in various ways. So it does change. Um, um, you know, books books are still a viable uh, medium, but you also have to expect that uh, if you publish a book, it's going to be available in, you know, various other formats and everything, which is not a bad thing. I mean, it's nice that people can buy your book in uh, digital media. You know, my books are available on you know, audible.com and, you know, digital downloads for your Kindle and all that kind of thing. So it's a good thing. It's just a little different. Now, when you do the audio versions, do you have a say in who narrates them? Do you do the narration? Do you find the voiceover actors that you enjoy, or is it something that the publisher handles? Um, a little bit of all of that. Um, I get approval for any actor that they want to do. Um, and I, I have the option of doing it myself, but I prefer having a professional actor do it i just think they do a better job with it um but yeah i work with them pretty closely to help them get the the tone right and help them understand some of the you know particular pronunciations and names and sort of style of reading one character versus another that kind of thing to help kind of relay the personality of the character right right let me ask you this it's a pretty interesting process yeah well i can imagine um i've brought up on past episodes um talking to fellow historians and reenactors um i've said on more than one occasion i think it's very very important in the days that we're in to at least at a minimum keep our history books in a hard copy format um it kind of concerns me that if we stop printing hard copy formats of our history how easily it would be to edit history if people who don't agree with that history somehow get in power in some way. I mean, it sounds a little little conspiratorial, but, you know, as you know, it's easy to highlight, delete, and hit save on something. Um, whereas sure. when you have a 70-year-old book, 80-year-old book, 5-year-old book, you can't edit a hard-written copy that's already been published and sitting on someone's bookshelf. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, as much as I support digital media and people having different options for consuming uh, your, your work. Um, yeah, I, I, I still need a hardcover book in my hand, and uh, you know, I hope I'll never see the day when my books only come out in some sort of digital format. I, I want a hardcover. Well, I'll be honest with you. I have never, I have yet to download a digital copy of any books. All the books I have are still in hardcover. Actually, and that too, I enjoy a softcover book, but I really love the hardcover books. And to me... Yeah. 
to me, with all the digital in our lives, I mean, not only do I do podcasts and work in radio, but I also have been running an IT firm for 14 years. And so at the end of the day, the last thing I want to do is pick up a tablet to read my books. I, I want to lay on the couch or in my bed and crack open a book, have it in my hands, and just unplug. Yeah, yeah, I'm a purist that way too. I mean, I, I, I totally get that it's easier to carry around uh, your Kindle with 100 books on it and stuff like that. But yeah, I'm sitting in front of a computer screen all day too. And when I sit down at night to read something for, for pleasure, yeah, I don't, I don't want to look at a screen anymore. Yeah, I want, I want a, a book in my hand that I can fall asleep with. Yeah. Well, I mean, unless you're a touring musician or a college kid, what do you need 100 books in your backpack for anyhow? <laughs> right, right. You're a vacuum cleaner salesman, for God's sakes. <laughs> One last question for you. Um, you mentioned sure. when you do your stories, you really like to find the untapped stories, the untold stories. And as you also stated, especially when it comes to World War II, a lot of the media out there, whether it's video games, books, movies, TV programs, a lot of it is the retelling of the same story. What? Yeah, you know, And then that's not exactly a bad thing, but they get different perspectives. But a lot of it is stuff that we've seen hundreds of times before. And so what yeah. I'm hoping maybe for your sake and mine is I would love to see this book get optioned. Has anyone even came to you with that? It is under option right now. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, actually, it is with Gulfstream's Pictures. Um, the studio is pretty excited about it. And so I'm optimistic that, you know, I've... Uh, with this and other books, I've been through the optioning process before, mm -hmm. and it's it's always you know exciting. But uh, you know the Hollywood system is is very very difficult and kind of capricious sometimes. You never quite know why something happens or doesn't happen. But uh, Gulfstreams is uh, pretty excited about this one, so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that we'll actually see this on the screen pretty soon. Yeah, options are very um, encouraging, but unfortunately, just like anything else in the entertainment industry, they're not guaranteed. Right, right. But I've always thought uh, from the time I was writing this one, I just thought this one uh, w would make such a good movie. I, that's, that's in fact, with this book and my other books as well, it, it's kind of the process I have when I'm writing, which is I kind of envision it in my head, um, you know, like, like I'm watching the movie and I tell you the story of what's going on. Um, so it, I, I have a kind of cinematic, very kind of visual imagery going on as I'm writing the book. And I and I think that, well, what I've been told by, by screenwriters and, and the folks in, in that industry that, that that really helps it translate very well to a film format. Well, and you may not be able to give away too much about the option, but with a book such as The Forgotten 500, like I said, the, the amount of sub-stories involved and the character development that would be required, I almost think it would be a great... 12, 13 part miniseries, almost like the Pacific or Band of Brothers. I, I think there's a little too much yeah. information. It, it would either be a long feature film or they would have to cut out a lot of the uh, quality storytelling in there. Yeah, that's been considered before too, and it's not even necessarily off the table with this option. Um, they're, they're looking at a, a major motion picture release, but um, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. There's, there's enough of the, the different stories there that you could definitely break it into a series. Well, Gregory, I want to thank you for your time. Once again, the name of the book is The Forgotten 500. You can uh, purchase it on his website, GregoryAFreeman.com. And do me a favor. You can actually purchase it on uh, on Amazon.com. Uh, you can go to my website for more information about all of my books, and okay. they're all available for purchase on Amazon. If you hear any uh, more information about the um, option in the future and 
it gets moving and you want to share it with my listeners, uh, please let me know. And if you want to promote any more of your books, please let me know and we'll uh, get the word out. That's great. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time, Gregory. You have a great night. Great. Thanks for having me. Good night. And as I stated earlier, this is a fantastic book. You know, I literally made it to Chapter 2 before I went out and contacted Gregory to get him on the show. And I'm so happy to have had him on. So please go out and check out this book, The Forgotten 500. You will not be sorry you did. It'll be a great addition to your World War II library. And thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Just a quick reminder, you can find everything you need to know about our podcast at whatsthescuttlebutt.com. Now, I know that's a lot of typing. It's a big domain name. So you can find us on Facebook at Scuttlebutt Podcast. You can find me on Twitter. Just look me up at DTrain96KROCK. If you're one of those people who download each episode from our website and then try to play it on your phone in your media player, I have found from past personal experiences that whenever you pause the show or the app closes out, when it restarts, you have to start all over. you got to fast forward, find out where you left off. It can get really frustrating and sometimes deter you from listening to the podcast, whether it's mine or someone else's. And so I would strongly recommend either using the 96K Rock app, use the Stitcher Podcast app, or if you're an iTunes fan, you can download us on iTunes. And the nice thing about those apps is when you pause them, come back later, it'll pick up exactly where you left off. I know Stitcher, you can actually control the fast forward and rewind from your car radio controller if your car radio is Bluetooth enabled. And so if you want to streamline your podcast listening habits, check us out on Stitcher, iTunes, or the 96K Rock app. Thank you for joining us this week. And once again, we've moved our show post dates to Monday evening. So we will see you next Monday.